This week on a lively experiment, the General Assembly returns to the State House. What are the key issues lawmakers will be taking up in 2024? And the partial closure of the Washington Bridge continues to affect tens of thousands of people every day. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us for a reporter's roundtable, the Providence Journal's Patrick Anderson, Nancy Lavin from the Rhode Island Current, and Ed Fitzpatrick with the Boston Globe. Hello and welcome into our first program of 2024. I'm Jim Hummel and it is great to be with you for another year of Lively. What will emerge as the major issues facing lawmakers in this election year? History shows that what we talk about in January often changes by the time the speaker hits the gavel for the final time in June or July. Everyone on our panel will have a front row seat at the State House to see it evolve. So welcome, Happy New Year to everybody. Nancy, let me start with you. Speaker Sakarchi is already talking about potential budget storm clouds. We seem to have gone from flush to let's be careful in this budget season. Yeah, I mean, I think that everyone knew this was coming. You know, the uh, forecasts for revenue growth um, are that it's going to be not a recession, but slowing. And then, of course, all of the federal stimulus money has to be allocated um, by the end of December 2024, whether, as Patrick recently reported, it will actually be spent in time or have to be returned to the feds is another question. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it was not a surprise. Everyone has been talking about, you know, this tightening of the of the purse strings for a while. It's like old times, Patrick, on Lively. We talked for years, oh, it's a $250 million deficit. We're not there yet. I don't think the, any money's going back to the federal government. They'll try to figure out a way to no, spend it. No, it's not. Um, and the speaker talking about how the budget is going to be tight is uh, like a, a Christmas card or a New Year's greeting, a tiding. <laughs> it happens every year. That, that's not since the recession where it, that was budget problems. These are a different category. This is more the speaker seeing a conga line of special interests and his colleagues, lawmakers, seeing that, that we still do have a, a fairly good budget picture and uh, realizing that they are asking for this, that, the moon, the stars. And this is a way of tamping down expectations as best he and, and other state leaders can uh, to try to quell some of, that, uh, some of those demands for, for everything. But the budget is still in fairly good shape. It's true that it's not as, as good as it was when there was federal money just flowing in, but there's, you know, there is roughly a $100 million surplus uh, yeah, as, as I reported uh, today, there's, there's still unspent federal money. So there is still money to be found. There just isn't unlimited money, and the demands just keep rolling in. Uh, so that, that's really what he's, a lot of what he's doing. Yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of like a preemptive strike saying, you know, there's all these requests out there, what, $100 million for housing, $100 million for a state archive. Uh, so, you know, he's trying to send a message to his colleagues, I think, that uh, it's not going to be unlimited. But, um, you know, the budget is up to $14 billion, and uh, although the uh, that federal spigot is going to dry up soon. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's still a hefty amount. I have talked about this. We talked this about this on the Globe podcast. Patrick, 
during the uh, during the campaign with Ashley Kalis, Governor McKee was asked, look, after all this federal money, which has to be run through, so that's why it's $14 billion, what will it settle in back at? Because we've gone from 9.4 to $14 billion in a relatively short period of time. And he said at the time, I think it would be $11.5, maybe $12 billion. Do we see actually budgets that are going to be less than what they are now once the federal money runs out? Well, we expect this next budget will actually go down. That's what that's what they think. But I don't think it's going to go down to that level. And I think once it goes down, it will then creep slowly back up. So we'll probably be back if we do get down below the 14 billion. We'll probably be back there. Uh, in not too long. There are some issues that, that do come with the ex expiration of the federal money where they did use it to give bonuses during the pandemic to workers. There are some ongoing things, some of the, the health care money that went to hospitals, which are struggling financially, and those might need to be propped up. Folks are worried about potential bailouts for the hospitals. So there are there are demands on the budget that, that do come with the end of this pandemic period. Plus, the in inflation kind of hits state government on a lag from where it does consumers, where the raises that are negotiated in contracts after the inflation starts are now starting to hit. So there are budget pressures, but it, we're not going to see the budget you know, collapse back down to a, a really low level. So, Nancy, any conversation with the speaker, he starts out with affordable housing and housing. And what, but what I see is I'm hearing a little different tone from the Senate. But talk about what you heard in his opening speech on, um, on the first day of the session. I mean, I think it's a lot of, um, you know, sort of congratulatory and, and not, um, you know, undeserved, but congratulations on everything we achieved last year, you know, sending this message of we're going to have to curtail or don't ask for too much this year. Um, but but it was also interesting, you know, he had a couple kind of pointed critiques in what could have just been like a feel-good speech. So, you know, talking about the housing package that, uh most of which passed last year and, and a lot of the new laws were implemented January 1st, he specifically called out municipalities that are trying to sort of circumvent or, you know, not go along with these new laws that are aiming to streamline and promote um, a new housing development. So, you know, he, he took the opportunity to take a couple jabs and then I don't know that it's necessarily a jab, but one other interesting thing is that they are asking, um, he is asking all members of the House to voluntarily limit the number of bills that they introduced this year to 15 per person, which I guess is a sort of reaction to the number introduced last year, which was, I think, more than 2,500 across both chambers. Yeah, it's a lot of bills that will never see the light of day. On affordable housing, though, it, it, he didn't call out Narragansett specifically by name, but Narragansett it, it kind of tried to do a little bit of an end around, my words, uh, from the state law. And state law is kind of hard to get around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, he, he not only in the uh, first day message, but uh, yesterday there was a, a vigil, the Interfaith uh, Coalition had a vigil in the Rotunda, and he was talking about how, you know, there are some, some communities don't want more housing. They, they don't want, you know, the status quo is not good, and you know it's not good, and I want to see these communities obey the laws that we've passed. So, you know, what's the threat behind that? I don't know, but uh, it, that's definitely the message he's sending. I think the threat is legal action, probably from a, a property owner. That's what the kind of suggestions have been, and I think and that folks are watching, including at the State House, that someone in Narragansett will, who owns property will challenge the ordinance that the town passed, take it to court, 
and the, uh, they could enforce the law that way, which, which could be damaging for the town. Probably more likely than Shikarchi passing a specific law to attack Narragansett or, or get around other communities doing that. Oh, that could happen in the future if, if there isn't court action. You, all, you also hear, um, you also hear uh, the speaker saying a lot of this isn't taking place. Some of these laws didn't kick in until just this month. Right, and so really 24 is going to be the, the year. But you also hear some of the leadership over in the Senate saying maybe this is not the time for more laws. We want to see how the money is being spent because a lot of that money hasn't gone out the door yet. Yeah, um, there was a, a new kind of... I don't know if, it, if it's a bombshell report might be exaggeration, but from the Senate Fiscal Office that Patrick, of course, has already beaten me to write about, um, about the amount of federal stimulus money given to the new Department of Housing, um, which has, again, asked for more money in this budget, including a $100 million capital bond. However, the Department of Housing has not responded to any of the requests about the status of its $321 million spending in various housing programs. You know, throughout this report, it's, you know, regarding this program, housing department did not respond, housing department did not respond, and all these other, you know, it's, they're checking in on all these different departments and programs that were supposed to be spent with federal stimulus money, knowing there's a clock to, to spend it or to allocate it. And I think both the speaker and the Senate president were pretty clear in, in interviews that we all did with them that they're not opposed to more to more housing programs, but we, they haven't seen a lot of the receipts on how the money they've already allocated is is being used or is the results of that. You would think Stephen Pryor would know better than that. He didn't want to follow in Josh. I mean, Josh Saul was, remember Josh Saul <laughs> a year ago? Um, <laughs> You know, he was totally non-responsive and really got under the leadership's skin. What, why is he not being Well, he did get back to them the day after Christmas. Maybe they were just, they had <laughs> other things on their, on their mind. Um, I think what, what really comes out with this is just the effort, the, the way that affordable housing programs in the state are done with this kind of public-private partnership with the, these nonprofit developers getting uh, federal and state money, it ta it's very complicated and convoluted, and it takes years, sometimes decades, to get these, these projects, even small projects, to get moving. And so it was always going to be, you were never going to see that money just instantly go up with construction unless the state gets into the business of building the housing itself and you just say we're going to you know we're going to put these apartment blocks down here bing 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 here's the money do it um, it's it take the way we do it just takes an extreme amount of time i all go ahead oh, and the speaker just seems to be pushing for that accessory dwelling units bill that it was the only one of the 14 bills. what do we call those in rhode island granny flats there i guess go. Granny flats. In-law apartments. So, yeah, that seemed to be his point of emphasis on the, on the first day. I also wonder, though, with a $100 million bond, we've already – look, so you roll off every year. We've had a, a tremendously high debt over the last four decades in Rhode Island. But I, I talked to Tre Seth Magaziner when he was treasurer. When they were proposing those school bonds, some other debt was rolling off. So he said, I think we can do it. But they've already committed half a billion, a billion dollars. You wonder with a, another an, – an ask for another hundred 
hundred million. We'll talk about the Secretary of State has a request also. How much debt are they is going to be acceptable? I mean, bonds usually go through, but a hundred million dollars more for housing after we've already committed two fifty. I wonder whether that makes it out at the end of the session. Yeah, Ruggiero was really emphasizing that that, that you know we've already passed all these laws, allocated all this money. It, it, it didn't. He didn't seem to have much appetite for uh, approving more. Nancy, what else are you looking at this session? Um, I mean, I think police reform is something that's come up a lot in both of their opening remarks. The Senate president and the House speaker alluded to sort of some measures to amend the um, law enforcement officer's Bill of Rights. Um, and, and I think what was also interesting to me about that is on the heels of that, this group of um, sort of community activists came out with this separate set of police reforms. And they did not mention Libor in their sort of list of other ways to reform. Um, sort of police oversight and monitoring, which to me makes it seem like everyone is sort of agreed that's a foregone conclusion, and now they're setting their sights on what else can we get um, in this session. But I think given that LIBOR has been the topic of many long, late committee hearings for, you know, several years, um, really since 2020, at least, that I've known about, um, it, it seems like that could be something that there's actually... Um, changes to that pass in both chambers this year. Do people like Medic Medicaid and uh, health care financing? Because we're all, we're all going to have to read up on that. Um, and I'm Are you dreading to, that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes wake up in a cold sweat. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Medicaid, the, the financing of, of health care is just continues to grow and every, as, as an issue in prominence, the problems with it. Um, and every top leader I've talked to has raised Medicaid, uh, if not their first and their second thing that they're worried about. What are you looking yeah, at? Yeah, Medicaid reimbursement and how it ties in with a, a number of primary care doctors that stay in Rhode Island is, is going to be uh, a top-line issue. One, one lesser one is uh, that payday lending bill that passed the House last year and didn't pass the Senate. There seems to be some momentum, like the Black, Latino, Indigenous, and Asian American Caucus was pushing for that. And, uh, you know, uh, former Speaker Murphy had fought that for years, but it, it did pass the House last year, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, on the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, Patrick, I had heard somebody say, and I don't know whether it's the Speaker or leadership over in the Senate, they want to get a bill out and get it done early. And the only time I remember any major piece of legislation going through early in the session where they don't do the bargaining at the end was the truck tolls back in 2017. That was kind of a leftover from Gina Raimondo's first administration. Have you heard anything about that? Because to me, in the Leobor legislation, the devil's going to be the three main issues are the composition of the panel. Uh, how long you can suspend an officer without pay, short of going to a LIBOR hearing, and police, uh, police chiefs talking about it. They've still got to get some type. They haven't been able to reach that compromise. So how are they going to get that done early in the session? Have you heard anything up there about early as I, opposed I, to late? I, I mean, if I had to guess, I wouldn't say that one is done early. They have been doing, on, on some issues where they do <clears throat> come to an agreement, both the House and the Senate leadership, they are doing stuff earlier, I think more frequently now, but I don't necessarily think that's going to be one of them. I think someone will have an objection that then provides an incentive to drag it on and to try to exert leverage and use it as a bargaining chip. And so it will, it will go down at, at least somewhere towards the end. But I, I mean, it does feel like something will happen on that this year that they, even if it's, even if it doesn't make everyone happy, that they would like to show that we did something 
on this at this point after so many years of promising to do it and saying this is the year, this is the year? Um, it, it seems like there's too many people in support of it not to do something. Yeah, and I think, as, as Patrick said, the devil is in the details. You know, Ruggiero has said he wants the exact same bill that passed the Senate last year, which obviously did not pass the House. Um, and even within the Senate, uh, one of the bill's original sponsors, Senator Anna Cazada, took her name off the bill because the changes that were made as it evolved, she wasn't in favor of anymore. So I think, again, I mean, I don't know, but I don't see that being something that they can all get to agreement on super early. Uh, the Secretary of State wants $100 billion for a new State Archives Museum. Treasurer Diosa has talked about taxpayer money funding so-called baby bonds that people on a certain income level, you would invest money and then they'd, they'd get that later in life. I wonder what the appetite for that is as we're beginning to head into tougher Fine. Yeah, the Secretary of State mentioned, you know, with the independent man coming down, there's a lot of interest in uh, Rhode Island history, and, he, and he's uh, um, been talking about the need for a state archives. Uh, you know, it's, it's in the Paolino building. It's tough to get public access to a lot of the archives now, but <clears throat> the, the, um, the, you know, it's $100 million. That's a lot. But the governor did say when they, on that day when they were bringing down the independent man that he'd, he'd like to put that, he'd like to see that move forward. Do you ask for 100 and you're happy with 50 or 75? I, I don't think the bond would be 100. I, I think the total cost of the project would be 100 million, but they try to use some philanthropic money and some federal money to uh, supplement that. All right, let's be honest. Who's gotten a picture of themselves with the independent man? Let's take a quick poll. Anybody? <laughs> You? I saw Ian Donis. Yes, no. I have not taken a selfie, but I do walk by it and I take a look. And I think, you know, not that this is necessarily for against the uh, $100 million state archives building, but I have really been amazed at how many people are stopping by the state house to see the independence man and take a selfie. And I think they've done a pretty good job of sort of making that into a, a marketing kind of Coup. We're taping on Friday the 5th. Maybe I should go after the show. Are we, you well, a couple day. of days left. This is the last <laughs> yeah, day. It's the, this is the last yeah, what day. What are we doing here? Let's go. You know how it is. Whenever I walk into the state house, they're like, oh, what is Hummel doing here? I'm just here to see the independent man. The real question is after they do the renovation work, where is he going? Because you know he's, we expect that he's going to have some kind of world tour. They should, and, they should run a little tractor downtown Providence. Just, you know, go around and can have a ticker tape parade. That is your idea. <laughs> I would, that's only my idea. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about potential changes to the Access to Public Records Act. Um, your course with the First Amendment Coalition. I know Senator De Palma, who's been championing this, has been doing a lot of off-season work. So it's important to all of us. Why is it important to the public? Oh, I, I think it's important uh, for a lot of reasons. I mean, there's 47 changes that would be made under that bill that Senator Lou De Palma has, has been working on and in, in the Senate and, and uh, Representative Solomon in the House. And it, it would provide us with greater access to uh, some of the emails of public officials, which other states provide. It would provide greater access to 911 calls that you, you see in many other states, Florida and others. It, it would uh, increase fines for uh, violations. So, in a, you know, it's not just important for journalists because Every day, I think, in this state, the, uh, there are stories providing valuable information to residents about their government because of APRA requests. So it, it's, it would be a huge benefit for the public. I mean, I think, too, with that 
members of the public could do their own public records requests. I think people don't realize. What a novel idea. Right. I think, well, I think people don't realize mm -hmm. that it's not just like journalists who have this like secret power or tool. I mean, we maybe have a little bit more experience with how to craft or the resources of a company to fight a denial of a public records request or get the AG to do it for you. Um, but I, I think that, you know, people are, are able to request public records themselves. And I think just more transparency in terms of access and how to do it and the types of information that is available is always a good thing. But it seems like it's gotten worse because the, the feeling is a lot of government officials err on the side of, well, I'm not going to give it out and you can challenge it. Tracy Breton, who I worked with at the Journal for years and then taught at Brown University as an adjunct, she had a class every year go fan out to town halls across the state. And they would go up, now you don't have to give your name or your reason, and they'd say, I want this document. And the town clerk would say, why do you want that? And it's, and it's typical across the state. We face this, but the public can't even get information on their own government. I don't want to get my hopes up. Don't, don't get my hopes up <laughs> that there is going to be public records reform. There'll be plenty of I've Medicaid. Been, I've been hurt too many times. Don't get my hopes up. But it, I mean, the, I think that's part of the problem is that once the, the public has realized this, there are more requests coming in and the state government doesn't know how to deal with that, want to deal with that. So they are making it literally, they are litigating everything. And that's untenable. We can't litigate ev the request for every single document cannot be a court fight. Let's do this. I do want to talk about the Washington Bridge, but let's go to outrageous and or kudos first. Ed, what do you have this week? You know, um, Patrick's colleague, Tom Mooney, had a story about St. Mary's home uh, for uh, treatment center for youth in North Providence and the the report that detailed the uh, you know the violence the assault sexual assaults of, of kids were, was outrageous and and uh, so that's my outrage this week. Okay, Nancy, what do you have? Outrage or kudos? I think it's a kudos. Uh, so the the state house has gotten a website redesign. Uh, the cost is two hundred forty thousand dollars, and as a non web design expert. I don't know if that's a good price or not, but I will say it looks much more aesthetically pleasing. And as someone who came into covering state politics much more recently than Ed and Patrick, I found the old website very difficult to navigate and to understand. So I haven't sort of combed through everything with the, the redesign, but I'm hopeful that for journalists, for people, that the $240,000 was a good, a good well thing. Patrick, what do you have? Ed actually had my outrage, but I'll, I'll still I'll still jump on topic. A specific part of it, it that was the I mean, he mentioned the most serious stuff stuff about the issues at St. Mary's. But in addition to all of that, they had a biker gang doing sec, essentially security at the home, and which which it was almost like. All, it sounded like a setup for like Altamont on uh, at Fruit Hill. It was just crazy. And I, I can't imagine what they were thinking. We, we do the only in Rhode Island moment in our year-end show every year. I, we got to break this down. We, we're like a month, a week in, and it's the biker gang at St. Mary's. Hopefully I'll remember that a year from now. Um, if you have been uh, trying to get over the Washington Bridge from anywhere in the state, you know it's been a challenge. This was breaking just about a month ago as we were getting ready to go to our year-end shows, and we haven't really talked about it much on Lively. Um, let's talk about, let's rewind the clock a little bit and state government's response to this. You know, Governor McKee got in a little dust-up with Brian Crandall, but I wonder what your thought is as a, as a reporter looking about how those initial days and weeks were handled. Yeah, 
I mean, I'm certainly no expert in crisis communications, but the people who I've interviewed about how this was handled from a crisis communication standpoint didn't seem to think they did a great job. You know, the governor was not at the uh, day of press conference with uh, Rideout Director Peter Alviti. There's been sort of, um, you know, some, some criticism of reporters for asking some you know, what many consider to be justifiable questions about leadership repercussions for what, you know, maybe was failed to be uncovered earlier about the bridge. Um, and then the other interesting thing to me is just kind of how quiet it, it went from not just in the news, but, for, you know, among leadership with daily press conferences all over the place to pretty quiet. I think uh, House Speaker Shikarchi gave mention of the bridge in a line of his eight-page introductory. That surprised you? Yeah, it did. I thought there would be more about that because it is something, you know, we can talk about accessory dwelling units and we can talk about um, extending temporary caregiver insurance, but in terms of what affects people's day-to-day -day lives, it's not those things. It's trying to get to work, trying to get to school, trying to get to the hospital. Trying to get to lively experiment it's to true. take this morning, right? There's a little trickle with everybody. Yeah, I, I agree that I think snapping at it, journalists and not uh, being there on the day one announcement is not the way to uh, handle it. But I think, you know, that's mitigated by the fact that it, the the bridge, uh, the bypass lanes reopened within a week. So, I, you know, I think that the uh, outrage was short-lived. It'll depend a lot. A lot will depend on what inspectors and others find in the days and weeks ahead and and if there are any whistleblowers if there's anything that indicates that folks at, at DOT either suspected or should have known uh, that this was a problem or that all of the mess in repairing the bridge kind of the contracting and procurement mess in the years before this all broke contributed in some way to this being a problem, you know, that will bring this very much back to life, if, if there is anything. There. Look, this has been going on for a long time, and, and I was talking with Ed uh, before we started. They, they narrowed from five lanes to two in Gina Raimondo's second election, and that backed things up. And some political advisor, crisis communication, said, let's go until after the, uh, after the um, uh, election. There was a suit with Cardi that kind of delayed things. Wouldn't you think the Federal Highway Administration, which has pumped tens of millions of dollars, wouldn't you think they'd want to do an investigation on what you, happened? I mean, it seemed like that was what was going to happen in the immediate aftermath. But now they've hired this, um, I guess, peer consultant group. And there's not and What really, does that mean? I, I'm not totally sure, to be honest. Um, but it, it, it seems like it's a private firm that has expertise rather than having the federal government, which is funding and sort of has the, the oversight and the mechanism. Which knows nothing about federal highways, apparently. I don't know. So, yeah, it, it's weird that Federal Highway Administration, FHA was all anyone was talking about in, the, in terms of review immediately after, and now they've kind of disappeared from what the about conversation. That? Uh, or, or they just don't want to publicize what they're doing. I mean, I, I think we expect that they well, are Well, they're not the watching. FBI. <laughs> we, we, well, but maybe they want to be. <laughs> I mean, we, I think we expect that that's what they are doing, but maybe they don't. And, and we, I guess at this point, hope that they are doing that and are just being secretive and not telling us about it. And you saw the Republicans this week call for an inspector general to look at issues like this. I don't think that's going to, in a sense, a uphill battle to get passed. That's been introduced every year for years. But uh, and you know, there's uh, also going to be oversight committee hearings to to take a look into what happened. All right. So we're going to do a lively pool here and say, at what date did they pull the plug on the ferries from Bristol? 
Oh, what is? Uh, it's January fifth. Uh, when's the Super Bowl? Again? <laughs> <laughs> the weekend is that February twelfth or thirteenth. You think it'll be okay? That's so that's your. What do you think? I mean, if I had it my way, it would have been done after Christmas. I feel like people took it once as a novelty, and it's not being used as an alternate form of commuting or getting where you need to go. So, given the cost. And it's 25 degrees today. It's not. Yeah. It's not 80. What do you think, Ed? Yeah, during the blizzard, I'll be out there. Um, no, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll go with mid-February. All right, we shall see. Uh, folks, thank you for joining us for this first program of Lively. Programming note, make sure to come back next week. We have our annual legislative leadership uh, program. We will talk to top leaders in the House and the Senate about what they see uh, as the priorities coming up. If you don't catch us Friday at 7 and Sunday at noon, you can see all of our shows archived at ripbs.org slash lively, Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. Come back next year, next year, come back next week and throughout the year as Lively Experiment continues. Have a great weekend. Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, a Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.